Hi. Um, hi, everybody. Welcome to a very special episode of Generation Elect. Today, I will be interviewing on the podcast Professor Robert P. George, one of the leading conservative intellectuals in this country. Professor George has worked at Princeton University for around 35 years, teaching and lecturing on political philosophy, civil liberties, the U.S. Constitution, and more. He has also served as the chairman of the U.S. Commission of International Religious Freedom, and the President's Council on Bioethics. He's written many books and has been called the most influential conservative Christian thinker right now. Today in our conversation, we'll talk about his work and political beliefs, as well as his views on how young people approach political problems nowadays, how politics and religion should intersect, where the future of conservatism is going, and how our country can heal divides and become less polarized. It's an absolute honor to be interviewing you. Welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure, Henry. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, this is great. Thanks. Um, before we begin the conversation, I just want to take a quick second to acknowledge the passing of civil rights hero John Lewis, since this is our first episode since his death. He was one of the greatest American leaders of all time, fighting for the noblest of causes, and is an example to us all. So, Yes, he was a great, courageous uh, hero of the civil rights movement. And let's yeah. not forget that on the same day, uh, we lost another great hero of the civil rights uh, movement, Reverend C.T. Vivian, who was known as Martin Luther King's field general. Uh, he was 95. Uh, uh, Representative Lewis was uh, 80. They both lived long uh, lives and uh, inspired many, many, many people. Yeah, two great American heroes who did so much great work in their lifetimes. So playing into that theme, I want to start the discussion by asking you your thoughts on the current national dialogue right now, much of which is centered around ending racial divides in the wake of George Floyd's death. What do you make of this movement that's come into prominence so quickly? And I'm curious as to your thoughts on how young people in particular are approaching this issue. Well, you have to tell me, Henry, what you think the, the issue is, the issue of healing racial divides. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, we see um, a lot of e pe young people definitely mobilizing to uh, end police brutality in some sorts, uh, you know, try to combat the flow of what they view as institutional racism. So, and it's definitely a movement that's come into prominence in our country very quickly this last month. So I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on what the state of this is. Well, it's, it's certainly good to see people uh, taking questions of racial justice seriously, uh, trying to reckon with our history, a very uh, tragic history of racial injustice, uh, beginning with uh, crimes not only against Africans and African-Americans, but also against uh, Native American Indian tribal uh, peoples. We mustn't whitewash our history. Uh, there's much that's good in our history, but there's also much that's bad. And uh, as my friend Cornell West and I uh, recently had occasion uh, to say in uh, some joint writing that we did, uh, we need to tell the truth about our history, the whole truth, black and white, good and bad, light and darkness, uh, and nothing but the truth. In other words, don't uh, embellish, uh, don't exaggerate in either direction, tell the truth. If that resolve came out of our current uh, conflicts and polarization, the resolve to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, then I would be happy and I would say, yes, uh, uh, this moment of reckoning uh, turned out in a way that was positive uh, for our country. Of course, the worry is that it won't turn out that way, that it'll be ideologized. Uh, people will be pursuing all sorts of agendas, uh, people on both sides or all sides, and that uh, what will be lost again is the truth the people in the hope of advancing 
this or that agenda will uh, spin the truth, embellish the truth, exaggerate, um, uh, not tell the whole truth. Yeah. Um, none of that would be none of that would be good. So is that uh, those issues that you were describing? Is that you think a systemic a systemic problem in today's youth? Our tendency to kind of whitewash what we don't like and the lack of openness to new ideas that I mean I personally see in my school among people my age. Is this a new problem that's to your concern? Um, again, Henry, I'm having trouble find, figuring out exactly what the question is. Oh, yeah. I mean, so are you worried at all about the lack of openness to new ideas that oh, sure. we personally sure, yeah. see? Yeah, we personally see from young people in this movement and in society from, you know, on all yeah, issues. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, there's a temptation, of course, uh, whenever there is um, uh, a moral a movement or a movement that tries to be a moral movement or a movement that acts in the name of morality or moral judgment, which in itself is a good thing. There's always a temptation to become self-righteous, uh, to uh, refuse to listen to criticism or acknowledge that there may be competing perspectives and legitimate points of view other than one's own. And of course, in its worst moments, uh, the temptation to shut down debate, uh, to prevent people on the other side from speaking, to use uh, formal or informal tactics uh, of, uh, of bullying and intimidation uh, to prevent people from being challenged. Uh, yeah, and it's mean, not good. And, and that, of course, discredits otherwise worthy causes. We have some good examples of this from our history. Think of the great cause of, of anti-communism, fighting against Soviet aggression, uh, the communist system, of course, has the greatest uh, death toll of any ideology in human history. If you look at the at the crimes committed by Stalin and uh, Mao Zedong and uh, Pol Pot and and other communist dictators, mm -hmm. uh, standing up and fighting back against uh, communist aggression, uh, for example, Soviet uh, imperialism, was a very worthy and noble cause, and yet it was brought into disrepute by people who, speaking in the name of that highly moral cause, engaged in tactics that uh, were simply inconsistent with the principles of liberty and justice for the sake of which we were rightly standing up against communism. So the McCarthy period of the 1950s, the smearing and labeling that went on, the violations of civil liberties, the ruining of people's lives and careers by false allegations of being communist sympathizers and so forth. There's a lesson in this for all people for all time. We need to look back on these historical moments and say, look, not only is it important that we be on uh, the right side of truth, that we be fighting for good causes, it's also important that we not sully those causes and discredit those causes by trying to advance them by tactics dishonesty, lying, smearing, defamation, intimidation, bullying, that are inconsistent with the very morality that we're trying to uphold. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm curious as to your perspective as um, a college professor, uh, I'm sure colleges are, you know, a hotspot and a hub of defamation and intimidation, even if you're fighting for a good social issue. Do you see this as um, a problem that's getting worse among our youth and in high schools and colleges? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, and my generation has not set a very good example for our young people. 
we have not promoted viewpoint diversity and robust civil discourse and debate on university campuses. We have allowed universities uh, to um, develop political or ideological uh, orthodoxies uh, that, um, that, that harden and sometimes harden into groupthink. We have not exposed our students to the range of reasonable and responsible uh, points of view across the political and ideological uh, spectra. Uh, that's not good. Not set a good example uh, for people. We did not model the willingness not only to challenge other people, uh, but to be challenged ourselves. We did not do a very good job at modeling uh, what it means to be truly open-minded, willing to listen to somebody on the other side, uh, willing to have one's own view uh, criticized. Uh, at far too many places, the assumption, the working assumption on the campus, which is abetted by the faculty or sometimes, sometimes actually promoted by the faculty, is that on all the important issues, we already know the truth, the whole truth, uh, and there's nothing else to say, and anybody who dissents from the established campus orthodoxy must have bad motives. That person must either be uh, uh, a fool or a bigot or a tool of nefarious interests or something like that. This is absolutely antithetical to education and to the truth-seeking mission of institutions of education. It is fundamentally in conflict with a Socratic principle upon which our whole system of education is based. Right. I definitely agree with you. And I see it in my high school, too. And I'm sure the problem only strengthens in college campuses, which are definitely more politically active than high schoolers. Um, I mean, do you see this as a problem that uh, has been exemplified because students are getting more stubborn and less inclined to go for viewpoint diversity? Or is this also more of a problem for is this more of a problem that the faculty in uh, schools has set out? I remember there was a poll that showed that uh, in all, all the Harvard professors, I think 80% of them were liberal, 19% were, were moderate, and only 1% were conservative. So is the lack of viewpoint diversity among college and university staffs contributing to this worrying trend? Massively. Uh, how can you expect students uh, to uh, consider competing points of view when you don't expose students to competing points of view. Uh, if, uh, if, if, if all students hear from the authorities, the people with PhDs, the people who are in the role of teacher, the people who are, who are looked up to is one uh, story, then they're gonna believe that there's one story because there is no other possible story or no other legitimate story or no other story worth, worth considering. Yeah, we're paying a very heavy price in terms of campus groupthink and uh, intolerance uh, and worse uh, among students for the failure on the part of faculties to expose students in a realistic way to the range of competing points of view. Now, this is why I love uh, teaching uh, with my friend Cornell West. Yeah. Uh, Cornell is on the opposite side for me politically. I'm on the conservative side. He's the honorary uh, co-chairman of Democratic Socialists of America. We have very, very different views. And yet when we teach together, there's that magic that happens when students are hearing competing perspectives uh, from uh, people who disagree, but are willing to engage each other seriously and listen to each other. 
And by listen, Henry, I don't mean simply sit quietly while the other guy talks. Mm -hmm. That's not really listening. That's sitting quietly while the other guy talks. <laughs> when Cornell and I are teaching together, when he's talking, I'm listening. And when I'm talking, he's listening in the deeper sense of thoughtfully considering what the other guy is saying and wondering whether there may in fact be some truth in this. Maybe there's something in it which should cause me to reconsider some aspect of what I myself believe and have been, have been saying. You need that serious engagement and willing, uh, willingness to consider the possibility that the other guy might actually be right. That's yeah. what listening is. And that's what goes on in the classroom when uh, Cornell and I are teaching. And that's what I'd like to see going on at universities across the country. It doesn't have to be two guys, two professors in the same room every time, the way Cornell and I are in the same room teaching. Um, but, but there should be opportunities for students to take courses from professors who hold a wide range of perspectives. And that is really what we're missing. And that should be true within departments. Mm -hmm. whether the department is a department of political science, African-American studies, history, uh, sociology, Near Eastern studies, Jewish studies, no matter what it is, there should be a spectrum of points of view. Within it. Yeah, I totally agree. The only way to get more well-versed in your own views and your own philosophies is to expose yourself and to, you know, gauge an intelligent discussion with people who uh, have contrasting views than you. So, I mean, that's something that I don't see a lot among my age level, but I'm hoping that I can go out and work to change that because it's a really good cause and I think a cause we're all lacking. Um, yeah, you mentioned uh, Cornell West. You're famous friends with him and, uh, for, and uh, obviously your political beliefs are definitely much different. Um, and it's really nice to see because we're talking about young people in terms of civil discourse with people they don't agree with. Like I'm friends with a lot of really liberal people who wouldn't make eye contact with a conservative pretty much. And same on the other side, it just um, especially among youth, it seems where we've gotten to a point where friendships and relationships can't be done cross party or cross ideology. And it's very frustrating because you can't accomplish anything through that polarization. Um, has this always been a problem or like who's to blame and how can we fix this incredible polarization where you can't engage and you can't have relationships with people on the other side? Well, of course, it's always been a problem, human nature being what it is. We, uh, we tend, we human beings, uh, naturally, to wrap our emotions more or less tightly around our convictions. Now, I want to say, Henry, that that's not bad in itself. Mm -hmm. um, if it doesn't go too far, in fact, it's a good thing. The fact that we are emotionally invested in our convictions is what gets us uh, up in the morning and <laughs> off to do our tasks. And, uh, you know, it gets the the kids fed at breakfast and off to school and yeah. get to our jobs and gets us working for good causes or what we think are good causes in any event, the causes we believe in. Uh, it's a good thing that John Lewis's uh, uh, emotions were wrapped around his convictions. And it was a good thing that C.T. Vivian's emotions or Martin Luther King's emotions uh, were wrapped around their convictions because it caused them to actually go out and do things and even be willing to take uh, risks and, make sacrifices and uh, endure terrible things uh, for the sake of what they believed in. But having said all that, if we wrap our emotions too tightly around our convictions, as we frail, fallen, 
fallible human beings are prone to do, then we become dogmatists. And that dogmatism prevents the open-mindedness that allows us to acknowledge our own failings and frailty and fallenness and fallibility and opens us to the possibility of actually learning something, engaging someone we disagree with, recognizing that there are reasonable people of goodwill who don't see things exactly the way we do, with whom we can sometimes cooperate on shared values, including the shared commitment to the, to the pursuit of truth, as, as Cornell and I do. I mean, that's the fundamental bond uh, beyond our shared Christianity, the fundamental bond that unites Cornell and me so tightly. In a, in a bond of friendship and love. Uh, it's the bond of truth-seeking. We, we may reach different conclusions about where the truth is on this or that issue, not always, but often, but we're bound together in the belief that we need to be about the business of seeking truth, which means that certain conditions need to be in place, including in our lives. Certain virtues and values need to be honored Uh, including recognition of one's own fallibility, the intellectual humility that comes of that, if we are to be genuine truth seekers, if we are to fulfill our mission as scholars and as human beings. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with you. We're losing the forest from the trees in some respect that uh, we're all pursuing the same goal. We just have very different methods of, you know, trying to get there. And it's it's worth weighing those and... uh, having those in conversation together. So that, that is a really good message. And I hope my generation certainly gets better on that because I don't see much well, of that. One of the pieces of advice I would give your generation, and again, yeah. my generation has not been uh, good at setting an example here. Uh, we should have and could have uh, done better is we need to, uh, and here's my advice, don't fall in love too deeply with your own opinions. We human beings <laughs> fall in love. Uh, you know, we, uh, we fall in love with each other. We fall in love with causes. We uh, fall in love with uh, uh, certain ideas. We fall in love uh, with uh, certain objects. Uh, we need to direct our loves properly. Uh, and we shouldn't fall so deeply in love with our own opinions that we value opinion over truth. That's a very if good point. If we're too deeply in love with our own opinions, then we'll love truth more, which means we'll be willing, we'll be open to changing our opinions under the weight of rational argument, evidence, the production of reasons that give us rational uh, uh, to, to, to change our views. If, if we're too deeply in love with our own opinions, then we have relegated truth, knowledge, uh, to a secondary and subservient uh, status, and uh, we won't be truth seekers. I definitely agree with that. So I, yeah, that was a really important conversation. And I want to I want to ask you about your work. I was reading about your work as the chair of the U.S. Council of International Religious Freedom, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe was from 2012 to 2016 around. Uh, so yes, what right. is- I served uh, on the commission, which is a, an independent uh, United States government uh, agency uh, dedicated to the cause of promoting uh, religious freedom in our uh, foreign and diplomatic policy. And uh, I served for four years and was chairman for two of those years. Yeah, what did that role entail? I'm curious about what your work was like on it. Uh, advising uh, the government, uh, the State Department, and the White House. Uh, uh, in this case, we were serving under President Obama 
um, uh, advising them on ways in which U.S. Uh, foreign policy uh, could be used to advance uh, the interests of persecuted people, people persecuted for their beliefs, their, their religious or secular uh, beliefs uh, around the world. The commission was founded in 1998 uh, by Congress uh, under the um, uh, U.S. Religious Freedom uh, Act. Mm -hmm. It uh, consisted of a number of members, some of whom were appointed by the president, some of whom were appointed by the members of Congress. The commissioners elected their own chairman, uh, the chairmanship passing back and forth between uh, Republican and Democratic appointees uh, on an annual uh, basis. This uh, should not be, and to uh, some extent we were able to fulfill this, but yeah. it certainly should not be a partisan issue. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no reason for Democrats and Republicans to differ over whether it's okay or not okay for the Chinese communist regime to persecute uh, the Uyghur Muslims in China right. or for the uh, uh, regime in Myanmar, Burma, uh, to persecute the Rohingya Muslims or for uh, the regime in uh, Saudi Arabia to persecute the Filipino Christians. Uh, these should not be matters of partisan division. And to a considerable extent, we were united across partisan and ideological uh, divides on the commission to promote uh, the religious freedom rights of people of all faiths, absolutely all faiths, uh, including unbelievers, including atheists who are sometimes of course, persecuted by yeah. uh, religious regimes. Um, goes in both directions. You know, atheist regimes like the Chinese or um, Korean regimes, uh, Vietnamese regimes will persecute religious people, but it goes in both directions. Uh, there's really no reason for uh, a partisanship uh, in any of that. And we, I think, did a pretty good job in uh, most of those cases of keeping uh, politics out of it. Now, now, people will have different ideas, and members of the commission did have different ideas, uh, at the margins about what constituted uh, oppression or violations of religious freedom or what exactly the U.S. should do about it. Uh, when should we use the carrot? When should we use the stick? Uh, the main tool that we had uh, under the statute for the commissions advancing the cause of religious freedom was the power uh, to recommend in a public annual report to the State Department the listing of um, the worst offending nations as what are called CPCs. And that's, that just means uh, yeah. those are initials for countries of particular concern, which when designated as such on our recommendation by the State Department, trigger diplomatic and economic sanctions uh, unless the administration waives uh, the sanctions, uh, which the commission can weigh in uh, for or against, uh, generally against, uh, yeah. historically, as you can imagine. The, the idea here, Henry, uh, and it's, it's a good one, uh, and again, it was Republicans and Democrats back in 1998. The, the idea here is when it comes to some dimensions, important values that need to be uh, advanced in our foreign and diplomatic policy, there will always be a lobby for them. For example, take trade. There will always be a lobby to promote the interests of American business in international trade. The Chamber of Commerce will be with us always 
It's not going to go away. Uh, another important area is geostrategic and military concerns. The military is always going to be there at the table, as they should be, uh, talking about uh, the, the uh, geostrategic American interests that are at stake when it comes to the development and execution of our foreign policy. Uh, what should our stance toward Pakistan be? Well, Pakistan's a staging area for our activities, our military missions in Afghanistan, for example. So the military is going to want to weigh in on that. But there is not a natural lobby that will be there uh, on behalf of victims of religious persecution. The point of creating the commission was to create that lobby. We were essentially yeah. a government, internal government lobby to stand up for the rights of persecuted people and to be in there in the bargaining process with the Chamber of Commerce, who is generally going to say, well, we don't want sanctions. We certainly don't want economic sanctions. American business benefits from trade with, say, China or Saudi Arabia. We want to sell Saudi Arabia planes, a military plane. We want to sell uh, and buy from China without restriction. They'll always be there. The military will always be there. Uh, but who's going to be there for persecuted people? They're not generally powerful people yeah. with the place at the table by definition. Well, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom is there. And so it was my honor. Uh, serving alongside, you know, great people like uh, uh, Katrina Lantos-Sweat on the Democratic side, uh, Marianne Glendon, uh, who was one of the Republican appointees, and really what Daniel Mark, my uh, former uh, student and now professor at Villanova, who then succeeded me as chairman of the commission, uh, working alongside these Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, to to stand up for the for the, for the real victims of, of persecution in places like Pakistan. Sudan, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Vietnam, Korea, China, uh, throughout the, Cuba, throughout the world. Yeah, and I know you were talking about um, the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. That's been in the news a, a lot lately. Um, do you have an opinion on, uh, I know you're not on the commission anymore. Uh, what's the commission doing about that present issue right now? And do you have an opinion on what the right steps to take on that? Uh, yeah, the, here uh, what the commission can do and historically has done, and here I think it's done a good job, and it continues to do a good job, is to use the bully pulpit. A part of the reason Americans today have heard of the Uyghur Muslims and know something about their plight is because the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, across party lines, has been ringing the alarm bell about the mistreatment of the Uyghurs, really now for getting on a couple of decades or more. So uh, that's the kind of helpful thing that the commission can do. It can put a spotlight uh, on, offender, on offenders and offenses and the victims. Uh, it can uh, call attention to what's being neglected by the media because, you know, who cares in the media about the Uyghur Muslims? Uh, that doesn't sell newspapers. That doesn't draw hits on websites. But with the commission, a government agency uh, beating on the table about this, that can help. We can also put pressure on administrations, whether they are Republican or Democrat, and they both need pressure, Henry. Believe yeah. me, this is something I've learned uh, in my government service on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and on the President's Council on Bioethics and uh, chairing U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. I got a lot of experience with this. <laughs> I can tell you um, whether you are a Democratic or Republican administration, you need pressure to do the right thing. <laughs> Because there is sure. pressure on you to do uh, the wrong thing or to go quiet or not say anything or say it's none of our business what the Chinese do to the Uyghurs or uh, 
or, or what uh, uh, what the uh, Vietnamese do to the Christians or what the Saudis do to the Filipinos or, or what the Burmese do to the uh, Rohingya. Uh, you you yeah. need pressure. And uh, the commission has been good at bringing that, bringing that pressure. Definitely. It's, it's such a fascinating issue. And um, I, I know you were, you mentioned you served on the council of bioethics, right? And um, I'm curious, does, in your, in your time on the Council of Bioethics, how much does the study and the work and the advisory of bioethics, um, how much of it has to do with politics and religion? Is it an issue that really transcends those two things? Or is it really mm-hmm. interconnected? Well, there's no way to get uh, politics or religion out of life <laughs> or yeah, out of yeah. political life. And we shouldn't want to. I mean, who honors, as we should all honor, the work and witness of Dr. Martin Luther King or C.T. Vivian or or John Lowe uh, needs to recognize that these uh, these uh, great heroes were mo- motivated fundamentally by the by the uh, religious convictions that they held, and in the case of those three men, the uh, Christian uh, convictions that led them to believe that injustices had to be overcome because the victims of those injustices are precious human beings made in the very image and likeness of God, and therefore bearers of profound, inherent, and equal dignity. Uh, that that's the fundamental belief, the insight, I would call it, uh, religiously based insight that uh, enabled uh, these leaders to, to do the work that they did, motivated them, inspired them to do the work that, uh, that they did. Now, you can do bad things in the name of religion as well as good things in the name of religion, and people are going to disagree uh, naturally in circumstances of liberty, uh, disagree uh, in some important cases about what are good things and what are bad things. But you're not going to be able to solve these things by banishing religion or pretending that you can take politics out. It's a political struggle, a struggle about the nature of justice and the common good. That's all politics is. It's the question of what is the what are the requirements of justice and the common good? People are going to disagree about that. And in democratic Republican politics, and it is the politics of a democratic republic, the way you do that is by having a robust, civil, open debate and then voting. And because we're a democratic republic, while you may lose today and things might be settled away differently than the way you think justice and the common good requires, there are no permanent losses because you can always come back tomorrow and try to persuade your fellow citizens that they made a mistake and we should reopen this issue and settle it in a, in, in a, in a different way. That's one of the beautiful things about running things as we say today, democratically, our founding fathers didn't like the term democracy because it implied to them mob rule. They Direct preferred the democracy, term yeah. republic. Yeah, they, they, they preferred the term republican, a republican order. But let's call it a democratic pub- republic. That's the beautiful thing about a democratic republic. Yeah. We fellow citizens are never permanent winners and we're never permanent losers. And we're always engaged uh, in a deliberation together, which can be pretty raucous with lots of disagreements about what justice and the common good, in fact, require. Yeah, I mean, you were talking about the intersection of religion and politics and you, how you can't make policy without your religious convictions. Um, what do you think the newer generation of political leaders and activists are misunderstanding the most about the intersection of, religious, of religion and politics? Because from my perspective, a lot of people just shout separation of church and state, but it's much more nuanced than that, right? So... What do you think? Oh my goodness! Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> are they going to want to send Martin Luther King back into church and stay say stay out of the public square and keep your religion out of uh, politics? Or they do they really want to say right. that? Uh, yeah, my so guess religion is that has they a huge place. Yeah. yeah. The other thing is, uh, well, you see it today in the phenomenon known as wokeness. Uh, this is no original insight with Robert George. It's been, it's been uh, noticed by about 50 million people and, and many different uh, uh, writers have called attention to it. And that is, wokeness is a religion. It functions yeah. as a religion in the lives of the woke. <laughs> um, uh, they are very uh, uh, deeply religiously engaged, even though the kind of religion represented here is not a uh, traditional theistic uh, religion, but not all religions are uh, theistic. Uh, sometimes wokeness uh, becomes very fundamentalist. It's certainly evangelical. It's got doctrines and dogmas, and it can become <laughs> and has become dogmatic. There are certain things that you've got to believe, and if you don't believe it, you're a heretic. And if you are a heretic, you are banished, and maybe deserve worse treatment than than banishment. You deserve to be canceled. Uh, intimidated, bullied, smeared, uh, called names, accused of being a racist or a white supremacist or, or what have you. You've got to believe the whole program uh, fervently in order to be uh, acceptable. And there are, there, are, there are saints and there are holy days and there's a whole eschatology, uh, theory of the last things. And uh, there are demons as well as saints. And uh, Wow, that, yeah, that's uh, fascinating. It, 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 if you think about it, uh, Andrew Sullivan has pointed this out about a million other people, as I said, 50 million other people have pointed it out. It's a religion, um, uh, and it's a religion that's very much about, about politics. But I don't condemn it for that reason, uh, because Martin Luther King brought his religion into politics, and I think that's a great thing. Uh, you, it, would be, it would be a terrible thing for the country if people were told, leave your religious beliefs uh, in the church or temple or mosque or synagogue uh, or at the dinner table or at nighttime uh, uh, at your bedside on your knees. And when you come into the public square, you can only act on secular motives, whatever those are. Now, I don't know mm -hmm. what counts in the category of secular uh, when we make that kind of a division between the secular and and the religious, because it does seem to me, as I said, it seems to so many other people, that wokeness itself is a, a religion and an increasingly uh, enthusiastic one and fundamentalist or um, uh, at least evangelical one. So I think there's just a lot of uh, misunderstanding there that could uh, be cleared away if we had a bit of self-reflection. So that's, that's my advice. Uh, how about some self-reflection, folks? How about some self-criticism? <laughs> yeah. About looking at what's really going on here. What am I doing here? What am I buying into? Am I being a dogmatist? Have I fallen into a kind of fundamentalism? Am I treating people I disagree with the way uh, the medieval church treated heretics? Uh, uh, am I so different from the people I have condemned in the past? Yeah, that's that's a fascinating parallel, and I really haven't considered that, but. No, it's it's super fascinating to see the beliefs and the doctrines laid out from you know my generation going into politics and going into their very structured and uh, structured beliefs on what what is right and what is wrong and who should be condemned and who shouldn't. But um, I do it, it was uh, it yeah. was people who believed fervently in their local religion, which again was not a religion of the sort that we traditionally think of as religion in our 
in, in the sense of being a theistic or Abrahamic yeah. religion. It was, it was people who fervently be, believed their religion who killed Socrates. And they right. killed him because he questioned the fundamental dogmas and beliefs that all right-thinking people in Athens were supposed to hold. He caused uproar. He caused scandal because he raised these questions about things that people were absolutely certain about and could not stand the thought of being subjected to scrutiny or, or questioning. He denied the gods of the city and uh, corrupted the youth. These were the charges, uh, corrupting the youth of Athens. These were the charges against, uh, against Socrates. Uh, I think it's yeah, very sober is... to, 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 think of, to think of these things. And this is an example of our emotions getting way too wrapped up in our convictions, right? We yeah, we, we wrap on reality around our convictions that we become dogmatists. We're unwilling to listen to the person who challenges us and consider that maybe he's got a point. Might might be completely right and we're completely wrong. Maybe we need to rethink this. Or if he's not completely right and we're not completely wrong, he's partially right. Or even if he's completely wrong. At least you might learn something from considering mm -hmm. how a reasonable, decent, honorable person of goodwill could come to a mistaken decision. It might help us understand more fully not only that we're right, as if we could check a box on an SAT score and get the SAT test and get the right answer, but why we're right or what the meaning of our being right is or the deeper meaning of our being right is. Yeah, and I do, I do think that that dogmatism has found its way onto both sides in American politics. I mean, we've seen so many people uh, in the conservative side, I guess, suddenly become receptive and supportive to the dogmatism and populism that Donald Trump, I guess, exudes on social issues and policy. Do you think there was always a longing for the Trumpism brand of this kind of convictions and emotions and the dogmatism he exudes? Uh there, there is always a market for populism. I, I was pretty surprised that what emerged was this particular version, the Trumpian version. And uh, uh, to, to be completely honest, uh, uh, I was one of those people who believed and said, uh, I was proven completely wrong, uh, that Donald Trump could never be elected, that there was no appetite for this kind of populism. Uh, I knew that there was an appetite, and it's a legitimate one, for what I th would have conceived as a more honorable populism. Um, I, the, and and, the, and I, the reason I say uh, there, was, there, there was room for that and, and it was desirable is that American elites in politics, culture, uh, economics, have a lot to answer for. Right. Uh, and what populist uprisings or uprisings against are elites. If you look at a wonderful book, much neglected, a uh, book from the 1980s by the late Jeffrey Bell called Populism and Elitism. You'll see Bell there calling for the kind of honorable populism that I think would have contributed a great deal uh, uh, to, to our country. Uh, one that called elites, uh, took elites to task, called them out for uh, the economic uh, and social policies that had, I think, harmed the country and for which elites were far more responsible than the people as a whole. But that's not what we got in, uh, right. in with, the Trump, uh, with the Trump uprising. Uh, we got an inferior uh, kind of populism, uh, one that is not um, 
you know, rooted in the fundamental truthfulness that any true reform movement has to be rooted in if, uh, if it's to, to do some social good, if it's actually serve the common good, advance the, the cause of, uh, of justice. It, it, it's not that everything about the Trump program is wrong or all his policies are wrong. That's not what I'm saying. It's a mixed bag when it comes to that, in my opinion. It's just it's not rooted in a real dedication to the truth. President Trump can't seem to make himself a truth teller. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't seem to want to try. You know, he says whatever is handy at the moment. And you cannot build uh, a decent and honorable movement on that, on that basis. I want to be clear that while I was not myself and am not myself a Trump supporter, I do not have contempt for Trump supporters. I know many Trump supporters are supporters who are holding their nose. They, they don't like Trump's personal character flaws. They don't approve of him. Uh, they wish he would stop tweeting and saying the ridiculous things that he says and telling lies that he tells. Uh, and yet uh, they approve of some of his policies, which I think they're right to. Uh, and they fear uh, the the policies on the other side and rightly say that in many cases you have offenders on the other side who are just as bad as Trump, but what Trump says in a coarse way, they say in a smooth way. So he's when kind of like a vehicle, right? For their yes, when President, yeah. Obama lied, when President Obama lied, he told smooth lies or told them smoothly. When Trump mm -hmm. lies, when President Trump lies, he tells them coarsely. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, I, I think people are right to be offended by the coarseness, but they should be more offended by the lying, whether it's a smooth liar like Obama or a coarse liar by Trump. Yeah. What, we, what we need to stop is with cut it out with the lying to us, people. Enough with this. Uh, tell us the truth. You know, we can handle it. We can take it. Take responsibility. When you've made a mistake, don't try to lie your way out of it. Tell the truth, you know. We're, we're, we're Americans have always been a forgiving people. If you if yeah. you come and say, look, I messed up, uh, you can you can come back with a second shot or even a third shot in a political career. This is the land of of second chances. It really is, or third chances. Mm -hmm. And and in that way, we're unlike a lot of other countries in the world, to our credit. But it seems that so many politicians uh, just want to. Uh, want to manipulate us. They think they can get away with telling us lies. If they mess up, they want to blame it on somebody else or shift responsibility or claim that they actually didn't mess up or, or, or what have you. It's, it's demoralizing, frankly. Yeah, and um, I, I'm, I don't consider myself a conservative on the majority of issues, um, but I see, from an outsider's perspective, I see how Donald Trump is viewed as like a vehicle, but at the same time, he has changed a lot of the rights agenda right like you guys used to be free traders and now he's uh, he has a lot of protectionism in his element and he doesn't embody the standard religious family values that your party is so famous for you know um for embodying so like are you worried at all that this new brand is damaging the very uh doctrine of conservatism that you have stood for sorry I don't think I, I can I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. You asked me whether I was worried, and I said I'm terrified. Oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not just worried. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, now, I think there, there's a legitimate debate about trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think a very legitimate trade about free trade, which I think is ideal. But uh, when, when free trade becomes unfair trade, then it's not ideal. Uh, I think making rich Americans richer at the price of the jobs of working class and poor Americans is not a good idea. Uh, I'm the kind of conservative who believes uh, what liberals say they believe or progressives say they believe. Uh, often I, th- I wonder what they do. But anyway, I'm the kind who <laughs> don't believe that when you're evaluating policy options, the first thing you should look to is what is the impact on the poorest, the weakest, the most vulnerable members of the community. Uh, in my tradition of faith, I'm a Catholic, in my tradition of faith, we call that the preferential option for the poor. And that's really modern Catholic, what more than, it goes back even further than the modern period. The phrase is modern. That's that's Catholic belief. That's Catholic doctrine. Let's, let's first think of the poor. That's just pure Christianity. Uh, and so I think in thinking about trade policy, well, in ideal circumstances, I think free trade is better than unfree trade, for sure. Yeah. Um, we need to ask serious questions uh, and shape our policies having in mind uh, the potential victims of, for example, the exporting of uh, industrial jobs overseas. So I think that all that's legitimate, but you're right that Trump fundamentally turned the Republican and conservative uh, ideology on trade on its head, moving from a, a pure free trade position to a, a, a protectionism position virtually uh, overnight. And obviously Donald Trump is a, how shall I say this politely, less than ideal model of the traditional family values that oh, I yeah. uh, believe in. Uh, I am old enough, you mentioned, uh, Henry, that I've been teaching for 35 years. It's hard for me to believe that, but it is true. <laughs> it means I'm old enough to remember uh, the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal of 1998. Right. Uh, not only the, uh, the sexual misconduct of the president, but also his obstruction of justice uh, his hiding of evidence, uh, his perjuring himself, his lying under oath. Uh, I remember all that. And I also remember that at the time, I said in uh, criticizing President Clinton that character really matters for leadership, that a, that a man or woman's character, virtue, is a central component, indispensable component for their worthiness to be leaders especially in our democratic republic. And I also remember that when I said that, I was joined by the vast majority of my fellow conservatives and of Republicans. Yeah. Well, I say the same thing today, and suddenly there's no chorus behind me. Or the chorus that I hear behind me is not a Republican and conservative chorus. It's a liberal it's a chorus. Democrat and progressive chorus. But then I turn to my, my backup vocalists, my chorus, and I say, well, wait a minute, you guys. I remember you from 1998 and 99. You, you weren't singing these this tune then. Why, why now are the conservatives silent on the character issue and the progressives bellowing? Right. And why were the conservatives bellowing in 1998 and the conservatives... Uh, uh, the conservatives bellowing in 1998 and the, and the progressive silent. I mean, I haven't changed. I'm saying exactly what I said. And I don't see any reason why I should change. I mean, if, right. if, if character was essential to leadership in 1998, it's a, essential to leadership in 2020. If it didn't matter for leadership, 
as the Democrats said and the progressives said back in 1998, then it doesn't matter in 2020. And you guys are, if I can use the legal concept of estoppel, he stopped from criticizing Trump. You might not like him, but you know, if you, if you wanted to take the position that character really matters for leadership, you should have been there in 1998. I would have loved the company. Um, so I just see so much hypocrisy in this on both sides, Henry. It's just so yeah. disappointing. So disappointing. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm glad I wasn't there in 1998 to contradict <laughs> myself. But, um, <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I mean, what's, what's the future for all this, this stunning uprise? I mean, for me, the 2016 election was the first election. I, I think I'm like 11 or 12 years old. It was the first election that I followed. And like, people keep telling me, like, this is not normal. This kind of stuff is not how elections are usually run. Like, this is the first election for you, but please don't, like, take this in as your normal view. So, is this going to be the new normal? Is is the is Republican Party's nominee, you think, in four years going to be, like, Trump 2.0? Or will Trumpism crash and burn eventually, and you guys will go back to more classical conservatism? Um, I, I wish I knew the answer to that question. Yeah. My record of being wrong about Trump and Trumpism... Uh, should be borne in mind here by listeners, so you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't quote <laughs> the word that I say. I uh, I have uh, uh, proven to be a very poor prognosticator of uh, political developments. Uh, I've had a better record on predicting some social developments, but certainly not uh, political developments. Um, there is not another figure in the Republican Party that I can see parallel to Donald Trump. So. It seems to me that given the personal nature of politics under Trump, uh, there's going to be a different kind of Republican uh, future. It won't be the Trump future, but I don't know what that will look like. I doubt that it will be going back to the old fusionism of the William F. Buckley days, yeah. to the uh, sunny morning in America uh, conservatism of Ronald Reagan. Uh, but what it will be, I don't know. So I look out at the personalities and uh, try to get a sense from the personalities of, of what direction it might go. And you, you, you see some, some figures there who are interesting, young, mostly younger uh, people. Uh, Josh Hawley, right. uh, the senator from, um, from Missouri, staking out some territory that makes it look to me as though he wants to make the Republican future a future that is a kind of virtuous populism. Uh, uh, some of what, much of what uh, Trump stands for, but without Trump's personal uh, moral flaws and foibles. Um, um, certainly not old-fashioned Republican uh, free market theology. Uh, Hawley is willing to take on the big tech companies, possibly even break them up, um, uh, take on woke capital. Uh, that's that's interesting. That's different. That's not just a going back. I uh, see a figure like Nikki Haley, uh, who, as far as mm -hmm. I can tell, is the one person to come out of service in the Trump administration in no way diminished, but actually enhanced. Right. Uh, some of herself who actually stood up to Trump when he. Uh, tried to undercut her at a crucial moment of uh, of her service in the administration. Trump does that to his people. He undercuts oh, yeah. them. And in most cases, he humiliates them. But uh, but she fought back and refused to be humiliated. Uh, 
you know, what would she represent? What sort of Republican future would she uh, uh, represent? She's former governor of South Carolina, um, woman of color, uh, Indian background, uh, convert to Christianity, but a person of uh, Christian faith. Um, that could be an interesting Republican future. Uh, Marco Rubio um, has done a very uh, sophisticated, I think, uh, found a sophisticated way of both criticizing Trump and supporting him when he yeah. could. Um, so you'll, if you look at Rubio and you're, you're, you're a Trumpian populist, you say, well, he was with us on the big issues. But if you look at Rubio and you're uh, uh, an anti-Trump person or a never-Trump person, you say, well, he was willing uh, to step up to the plate and criticize the president's excesses and the president's lies and, and the president's bad behavior. Um, ben Sass. Ben Sass oh. uh, may be the smartest guy in the United States Senate. Um, a negative, an, an anti-Trump. Uh, he was, a, yeah, he was anti-Trump for a long time. Yeah, um, senator from Nebraska, uh, surviving uh, out there despite his anti-Trumpism. Uh, with the Trump agenda in a lot of uh, specifics, not all, uh, but he he supported the actual traditional conservative side of the uh, right. of of the, Trump, of the of the Trump agenda, and uh, despite uh, Trump's not liking him at all and trying to undercut him, uh, you know he's remaining a popular politician uh, in Nebraska, which is a very pro-Trump state. So, you know, you look out there and you see some young people who, uh, you know, could represent uh, an interesting future, perhaps a bright one for the Republican Party. Tom Cotton, the senator. From oh, yeah, he's eyeing up around. He became the subject of controversy when the New York Times uh, published his, um, uh, his, uh, his article about um, uh, use of federal uh, forces in, um, in uh, cities where riots were occurring protests um so you know i i i don't know what the future is going to look like but it won't look like what things look now it doesn't look the way things look now it won't be trumpian because so much of trumpianism is personal and it's personal to donald trump and when he's gone it's not going to be the same there's no way to inherit the trump mantle because it's uh it's an individual brand but I don't see it going back either to Reaganism or to Buckley-style fusion, fusionism. It's going to be yeah. something different. It's not going to be Paul Ryan who's going to take the mantle again in four no, years. No. It's, it's not going to be Paul Ryan, which is interesting because uh, eight years ago, you would have said Paul Ryan represents the future of the Republican Party. I would have said that, and again, right. I would have been yeah. uh, I mean, just uh, not to jinx the poor guy, but <laughs> if I had to lay a bet, if, if, if somebody put a gun to my head and said, what what will the Republican Party look like in the future? Um, I would say the vision that's likely to prevail is Josh Hawley's vision. Now, that doesn't mean that Josh Hawley will necessarily be the standard bearer, although he could be. He's a very, yeah. he turned out to be an astute, uh, sure-footed politician. Uh, but I suspect it will be something like that, which is not Trumpian, and it's not Reaganite, and it's not Buckleyite. It's something different. Yeah, it's definitely in an evolving, developing phase. And yeah, Holly's definitely been on my mind. And he really articulates the more modern conservative, like Trump light agenda very well. So that's an interesting insight. Yeah. I, um, I want to ask, I you know this is a completely different topic, but I was reading about your um, 
American Principles project you created a bit over a decade ago. Um, I'm kind of curious about what the what the goals were of that and, you know, how that worked. Like, if you could inform our listeners about what the project was centered around. Uh, well, uh, my thought in uh, creating the American Principles project, project was to try to build a uh, grassroots uh, movement uh, to support uh, the kind of conservatism that I myself represented, my own ideas, which uh, was sort of the Reagan three-legged stool of conservatism idea, kind of updated version of the Reagan three-legged legged stool. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that metaphor means anything to your generation, but uh, in the day, uh, it meant uh, uh, strong uh, social uh, conservatism, uh, a basic market-based economic view, you know, properly regulated, not, not a radical libertarianism, right. but where the market had priority and where, where, we, where we relied on government intervention only when it uh, was required and justified. And we, we tried to lift people out of poverty by letting the market do its work. Uh, and then on the foreign policy front, a strong human rights-based uh, foreign policy, again, in the mode of, of Reagan during the war against uh, the Cold War against uh, the Soviets and the communist empire. Um, uh, that, that's reflected in my own work in my service on the U.S. Commission on International uh, Religious Freedom. Uh, so that was the idea. Um, the, the grassroots movement, I have to admit, never really developed. Uh, a- APP, American Principles Project, did not really become a grassroots organization, not in the sense or to the extent that I had hoped it would be. Yeah. Uh, I, I was the founder, but not, uh, not the leader and not a member of the, uh, of the board, uh, although I've continued to uh, uh, advise and where I can help the uh, organization. The, um, the team, the APP team, uh, divided the way um, the conservative movement divided over Trump in 2016. Really? With some, um, uh, some of the uh, leading people in the organization going uh, in, the, in the pro-Trump direction and then uh, people like me refusing to, uh, to go along. So, you know, we, uh, we agree to disagree uh, to a considerable extent about, about the president and, uh, and some of his policies, but try to uh, keep the focus on uh, the things that we do agree uh, about, uh, the social conservative, you know, prominently our pro-life values. Uh, our, our fundamental belief in the market regulated, but, but basically free, believing that, that serves the human interest, not, not just the rich and powerful, but, but actually is the mechanism for lifting people out of poverty in ways that socialism cannot. And then a human rights-based um, foreign policy, especially when right. it comes to, um, to trying to stand up for victims of religious persecution across the globe. So uh, that's what that's all about. Yeah, I was kind of curious. Um, I was just reading quick. Uh, you said uh, there were critiques to be made about the AP U.S. history curriculum, and that, that's one I'll soon be taking. And I'm curious uh, as to what work or criticism your group has done about that curriculum. And I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, uh, the the concern I think was rooted uh, in uh, concerns about the Common Core. Uh, oh, right, a right. one-size-fits-all curriculum that moves authority for fundamental education decisions from parents and local communities, and effectively nationalizes them, even if it's not even if it's not 
by the coercive force of law. Um, I, I'm a strong believer in parents' rights and in parents' rights to direct the education and upbringing of their children. Um, school choice, right? Uh, yeah, yeah I, I prefer school choice. I, I do strongly uh, favor uh, school choice. But even if we don't have school choice, I want local control. Uh, I want curricular decisions to be made to the extent possible, not by elites, not by central planners, but by uh, local uh, communities. And I'd like to see a market develop in providing materials uh, for courses, for teaching, that's really competitive uh, so, that, so that the market will do what markets do well, drive quality up and price down mm -hmm. to provide parents and local school uh, officials with the best possible choices of curricular materials, including in the, in the history area. And I certainly do not want, I think we need to avoid um, dogmas and orthodoxies, especially nationalized dogmas and orthodoxies, uh, controlling the curriculum when it comes to civic education and um, American and world history. Right. should not be some dogmatic point of view here. There are a range of reasonable and responsible points of view. I believe in exposing students to the extent possible uh, to as wide a range uh, as we can. Um, uh, I, I don't want there to be some whitewashing of history, but I also don't want there to be some agendaized woke version of history, uh, the kind of thing. Oh, that we, we see that. Yeah with the uh, Howard Zinn's uh, People's History of the United States. I, I think that is the progressive equivalent of uh, the, the kind of uh, uh, old fashioned um, glamorizing of American history that progressives rightly object to, which tells the right. story without any sins or faults or flaws and you know, plays down the crimes of slavery and crimes against the Native American Indian tribes and so forth. Yeah, it's about finding the right medium between those two. Yeah, so um, that's all I really have. Finally, since we're a, a youth-oriented podcast, we asked this last qu last question to all guests. Um, what would your advice be to a teenager who's interested in policy and politics and wants to get involved regardless of their stances? We have a motto in the James Madison program at Princeton, which I have the honor uh, to have founded uh, and have directed for 20 yeah. years. And uh, the motto is really three points. And I can't stress these strongly enough, but just don't treat them as cliches. I want you to think deeply now about, about all three of them. And the very first one is think deeply, not superficially, think deeply. Second, think critically. That means raise questions, raise questions about any proposition that you are being invited to uh, affirm. Uh, or reject. Remember that when you affirm a proposition, you affirm all that it entails and all that it presupposes. So buyer beware, caveat emptor. Yeah. Think critically. And then finally, and this is this is the biggest challenge for you young people, at least in my experience, 35 years teaching at Princeton University, think for yourself. You cannot outsource your thinking. You can't farm it out to other people. And this is what I see so often, even among our best and brightest students. They're not thinking for themselves. They're letting the crowd think for them. And sometimes the crowd becomes the mob and they're letting the mob think for them. They're not pausing to say, no, wait a minute. 
why do I believe that? Am I just going along with the group? Is this, am I thinking this because this is what everybody thinks? I mean, that was true of people who believed in slavery in the 19th century. They believed in it because everybody right. believed in it. That, that's what people believed when they believed in eugenics. They went along with yeah. because everybody, but all the right thinking people, all the smart people, the sophisticated people, people with PhDs, people who went to Harvard, they were all for eugenics. How did they all get it wrong? They got it wrong because they outsourced their thinking. They fell into groupthink. They didn't think for themselves. So here's my advice, Henry. Think deeply, think critically, and think for yourself. Yeah, thank you so much. That's, that's really profound. And I'll, I'll definitely keep those in mind. I just wrote them down so I can think about them deeper later on today. But um, uh, one more piece yeah, so of advice. Uh, for, sure. for, I have one more piece of advice uh, for, for, the, for the strong students, the real high achieving students. Um, think Princeton. <laughs> well, hopefully our paths cross later in life. It's, it was an honor um, to interview you. This is really one of the most fascinating conversations I've had in a very long time. And it's really so great when people, I, I really appreciate that you're responsive and wanted to come on. And thank you so much overall. This has been a really great uh, conversation. And I'm so happy that we got to do this. Well, thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, it was great. And uh, hopefully you and your family are all good right now, staying safe, and um, the best of luck to you. And I really thank you so much. Have a good one. Same Bye. Same to you. Bye-bye now.